0: on the justice of god so a god who is merciful but isn't just will not punish sin and will not establish a kingdom of righteousness and joy he may not even save you like he said he would so perhaps recognizing the uh, the anemia of this mercy only god you would say okay well then give me the god of justice but the problem there becomes immediately obvious doesn't it you're a sinner And a just God must punish sin, eradicate sin from his presence. So if you choose a just God who isn't merciful, there may be a righteous kingdom someday, but you won't be in it. You must be condemned for your sin and unrighteousness. God has a dilemma. He has a dilemma because we know, as Scripture consistently affirms, that God is both just and merciful. He is both righteous and gracious. The whole purpose of the book of Romans is to expound the gospel, which is predicated upon the righteousness of God that it reveals. Remember chapter 1, verse 17, or verse 16, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Without a just God, there is no gospel. But Paul has also spent the last two chapters, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, methodically establishing the sinfulness of human beings. We suppress the truth. We worship the creature rather than the creator. We condemn others for the very sins that we ourselves commit. Every part of our being is affected by sin. But the gospel that reveals God's righteousness is also the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How can this be? How can it be that God is holy, we are sinners, and yet God saves sinners through the revelation of his righteousness? That's what today's passage is all about. Romans 3, 21 through 31, answers the question... How can God be just and justify sinners without compromising or diluting his justice? How can God be righteous and make sinners righteous, all the while remaining true to his own character? And so we turn to these verses in answer of these questions. I'm going to invite you to stand with me in reverence for God and his word. And I'm going to read for you verses 21 through 31 of Romans chapter 3. And then we'll unpack these verses together. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. you. You can take your seats. After a pretty long stretch of really bad news, these verses are an oasis in a desert. These verses finally get around to beginning to explain the good news that he set out to explain. In fact, these verses very nearly summarize the entire gospel message. Sinners are made righteous before God through faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ in his death by which he satisfied God's righteous wrath against our sin, and through which he applies to us his own record of perfect righteousness. That's what these verses teach us in a nutshell. Two major points that follow the sort of paragraph division of this text. Number one, God makes sinners righteous. How can a righteous God dwell with a sinful humanity? Here's the answer, he makes sinners righteous. He makes sinners righteous. I love the first two words of verse 21, but now. It reminds us of what's come before. It reminds us of a stark contrast with all that he has been laying out so far concerning the sinfulness of human beings and the holiness of God. It is a turning point in the book of Romans. Sinners can be made righteous how can this be? After the conclusion of the last two chapters, if every part of a human being is affected and marred by sin, and we choose the creature over the creator, and we are immoral in countless ways, how is it that God can make these sinners righteous? So you'll notice he returns here to the theme that he introduced in chapter 1, verse 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, this is verse 16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and the Greek. Then in verse 17, he explains why it's the power of God to salvation, for in it, that is in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And so verse 21 of chapter 3 begins this way, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So if you were to kind of think of chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20 as a big Parenthetical statement about the plight of human beings, the condition of human beings, then you could see that it goes very clearly from 117 to 321. He just picks up exactly where he left off and on he goes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What righteousness is he talking about? A righteousness of God that's been manifested apart from the law. Now, I need you to notice that the same root word in Greek appears seven times in verses 21 through 26, the Greek dikaios, and it's translated in several different ways. Sometimes it's righteous, sometimes it's righteousness, sometimes it's just, sometimes it's justify. All of those words have the same root so when we talk about someone God being just, we're talking about God being righteous. We're talking about his righteous character. When we talk about God justifying someone, we're talking about him making someone righteous. And it's used in some different ways. So in verses 25 and 26, down toward the bottom of that paragraph, it speaks of, it refers to God's righteous character. So when he says that Christ was put forward to show his righteousness, there it's talking about his character character and i'll just remind you of a definition i gave you some weeks ago about the of the righteousness of god the righteousness of god is the character of god by which he unfailingly eternally does that which is right and upholds the honor of his name that's who he is and so in verse 25 when it says he was showing his righteousness it's talking about his righteous character right who he is but in verses 21 through 24 It refers not to God's own character, but to a righteousness that he gives to sinners as a gift of grace. It's a verdict of righteousness that's declared of sinners, that's imputed to them. If you hear someone speak of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, this is what we mean. It means God makes sinners righteous through Christ. He declares them to be righteous. So that's a key word throughout Romans. And this passage, it's it's very concentrated. He tells us the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. And the law and prophets there summarizes all of the Old Testament scriptures. Sometimes he uses law to refer to like the Mosaic code. Sometimes he refers to the law in these kind of broader ways. I think this is one of those broad ways because then he tags on this law and prophets, which is shorthand for all of the scriptures that God had given to the people of Israel through, uh, through their prophets. So we know from verse 20 that sinners can't attain righteousness by keeping the law, right? He says, no, by works of the law, no human being will be justified that is made righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But the Old Testament scriptures anticipated and foreshadowed this grace gift in the gospel. He already alluded to this back in chapter 1, verse 2, as he was introducing himself and his theme. He said he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. right? The oracles of God, with which Israel had been entrusted, if they were rightly read and understood, pointed toward their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So this is not fundamentally new. This is in keeping with what God has always been doing, what he's always been promising, and how he has always operated. Verse 22, the righteousness of God. Here's the righteousness that's manifested. So again, we're getting back now to he's unpacking chapter 1, verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, why is that such good news? Here we go in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here's a good gospel summary verse that you could memorize. Sinners are given righteousness. They are declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the way a sinner is made righteous before God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, which he'll expand on in just a second, what Jesus has done. And he says there's no distinction, which we've already seen in the way of Uh, how he has methodically gone against after gentile christians and sort of pagans and their idolatry and he's gone after jewish believers as in religious jews and the way that they are trusting in the law to save them the keeping of the law to save them and all the while breaking it and condemning others for their breaking of it he has shown us over and over jew and gentile alike are guilty before god right We've already charged that both Jew and Gentile are under sin. And so he summarizes that for us here in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so that's a summary of his argument from 118 all the way through 320. All have sinned. There is no distinction. All people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They miss the standard. They violate God's righteous character in the way that they live. And so he summarizes his argument there. Not to mention, this is the first verse in the Romans Road. Anybody familiar with sort of the, the method of sharing the gospel that walks through verses from Romans? This is where you start. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the condition. That's the predicament that human beings are in that he will answer by his grace. And so we see in this phrase that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we see that just as all human beings are sinners, all who are made righteous before God are thus declared by his grace as a gift. Not because you work hard enough or you look good enough, but by his grace. That word simply means unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. It's not because you checked the right boxes or did the right things or showed up at the right places. It's because God, in undeserved kindness, just gave you the gift of his righteousness, declared you righteous. Since no one can earn righteousness by law-keeping, righteousness must be given by God as a gift. That is grace. When we sing about grace and celebrate the grace of God, that's what we're talking about, the free gift of God. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I want to point out a few allusions here to the law and the prophets, the oracles of God, the Old Testament that he's been quoting from so liberally in this letter. The first is the word redemption. When he says that we're justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the word redemption means to buy back. It's a purchasing of a person out of some debt or servitude that he had. The obvious analogy that the Jewish readers of this letter would come, up, would, would come to their mind is the, the analogy of the Passover, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and God, through the shedding of a blood, the blood of a lamb that they placed over their door, caused the angel of death to pass over their homes and thus spare their children. And it was on that very night, through that very act, that God led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And so the redemption of God's people points back to the Exodus. It points back to the Passover and how God, through Moses, redeemed his people from slavery. And he's applying that analogy to Jesus. There's redemption of his people through Jesus, the death of Jesus Christ. And so we have this looking back to the Passover and applying it to Jesus and what he's done. The next one is this big fancy word, propitiation, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's a snappy word. It rhymes a lot. A, you'll find it in lots of songs. No, nobody puts this in songs. But what it, it, this is referring back to the, the notion of atonement, the day of atonement. And in fact, some translations actually render this, that God put Jesus forward as a sacrifice of atonement or an atoning sacrifice. It's the, the, the same uh, uh, subject is being referred to. And so if you were to read back in Leviticus chapter 16 you'd read about the day of atonement where this one day a year the high priest would enter the holy place, the inner place of the temple with the blood of a goat and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and the, the, the shedding of that blood was so that that goat would die in place of the people right? Because God is holy and he's dwelling with a sinful people, and the way that he deals with their sin is through the shedding of the blood of a goat. And so one day a year, this goat's blood would be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place as a representation that God is counting them as righteous by dealing with their sin in this way. And then there was a second goat that was called the scapegoat where the priest would lay his hands on this goat and symbolically transfer the sins of the people to this goat, and then they'd set him free, and he'd run out into the wilderness, carrying the sins of God's people away from his presence. And when Paul refers to this day of atonement, this atoning sacrifice, and he applies it to Jesus, he is showing us That the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, have always been pointing forward to this sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus dying in the place of sinners, shedding his blood so that God could then again dwell with sinners. And he functions as the scapegoat who carries the sins of his people away from his presence. And so he demonstrates here some specific ways that the law and prophets, the oracles of God, bear witness to this salvation. Another really important place where these themes are seen is the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Just a few verses from here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. At the heart of the gospel is the substitution of Jesus in the place of his people. Jesus in the place of sinners. Jesus redeeming us, buying us back from our slavery to sin. Jesus atoning for our unrighteousness by the sacrifice of his own life and the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sin. This was to show God's righteousness, he says in the middle of verse 25. What this is he talking about? The cross. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Right, God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why did he do this? It was to show God's righteousness. I wonder if that's the word you would expect there. I wonder if when you think about the cross of Jesus, your first instinct is to think of it as an expression of God's righteousness. I'm guessing, if you're anything like me, you probably typically think of the cross as an expression of God's love. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because he loves us. Why did God send Jesus to die for sins? Because of his great love for us. Now, that's not untrue. That certainly is that. Ephesians 2 tells us that because of the great mercy with which, the, the great love with which he loved us, right, sent Jesus. So it's certainly true that it's an expression of God's love, but that's not what Paul emphasizes here. Paul doesn't say this was to show his love at the present time. Why? Why is righteousness what he chooses to emphasize? Because God's righteous character is in jeopardy. Remember that dilemma I was talking about at the beginning. God is holy. People are sinners. How can he make sinners right? How can he dwell with them? One commentator says it this way, if God can suddenly let us all off the hook, his justice is a sham and the gospel is a scandal. So God can't really, if he's going to be true to himself and uphold his own righteous character, he can't really look at human sin and go, you know what, let's just call it a day, let's just call it water under the bridge, let's let bygones be bygones, no big deal. God can't do that. That's not possible. If he does that, he is compromising his own righteous character and ceases to be God. He ceases to be who he is. How can God make sinners righteous without compromising his own justice? Will he justify sinners or will he uphold his righteous character? And the cross is the answer to that dilemma. God sent forth his son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for sin Because his righteous character needed to be vindicated. He needed to show that he really is holy and righteous and does not abide sin. And he needed a way to make sinners righteous through a work outside of themselves. Because by works of the law, no human being will be justified. And the cross is the answer to that dilemma. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Excuse me, the, the, the tail end of verse 25, because, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, that's patience, he had passed over former sins. He hasn't already just judged the entire world. There's a whole history of Israel in the Old Testament where his people sin and sin and rebel and rebel and are unfaithful and unfaithful. And God hasn't struck them all down yet. God has still made these promises. He's still upholding his word. How can he do that? What might the world conclude by God's patience, by the fact that God isn't judging sin? Maybe something like, I guess God doesn't really care about sin after all. I guess it's no big deal. And so, in the cross of Christ, we see the depth of our sin and rebellion and the unbending standard of God's perfect righteousness. So he answers his dilemma by punishing sin in Christ. And good news for God is good news for us. He is able through the atoning death of Jesus Christ, to both uphold his righteous character and to make righteous those sinners who believe upon him. He is able in Christ to both be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the, the upshot of all that in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, that he might be righteous and make righteous sinners who have faith in Jesus. And so faith in, trust in, the work that Jesus accomplished in his death, in absorbing the wrath of God against our sin, faith in that work is the vehicle through which God declares sinners righteous. And as he declares sinners righteous, he removes the tension between holy God and sinful people because sinners who have trusted in Christ are now seen to be righteous as he is righteous. The character of God is upheld and sinners are declared right with him. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why is the gospel good news? Because the righteousness of God is revealed. Why is the revelation of God's righteousness good news? Because it's not just a showing of his righteous character, it's a giving, it's a receiving of his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of God gave his life for us, and our measureless debt was erased, as we sometimes sing. God makes sinners righteous. The second paragraph begins in verse 27, and it's shorter. The way I summarize it is this, God saves all who believe. God saves all who believe. So what's the upshot of the grace gift of God's righteousness? He tells us there in verse 27. What becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. There's nothing to brag about. There's no obedience to point to or be confident in. There will be no one in the new heavens and new earth who will be celebrating their spiritual resume or religious pedigree. Everyone will point only to Christ the Redeemer in humble adoration and joyous praise Boasting is excluded the way that God has set this up the way that God saves sinners is by making them righteous through the work of his son Through simple faith that he gives as a gift none of this is our work. It's all his work We have nothing to boast about How is boasting excluded? By a law of works he asks no but by the law of faith. Here I think the word law simply means something like principle or the norm. I don't think he's referring to the law, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. He's pointing to a principle of faith. And then he explains what it is in verse 28. Boasting is excluded by the law of faith. And here it is in verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's the law of faith that he's talking about. So why can't we boast about our salvation or our standing before God because we're justified by faith apart from works. It's not your obedience or your lack thereof that indicates you're standing before God. It's simple trust in what Jesus has done and what God has provided in Christ. If obedience to the law were the way to be righteous, that would imply... That only the Jewish people to whom he had given the oracles of God could be saved. And that's why he asks this rhetorical question. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Right? So if, if you think, if you're still maintaining that righteousness comes through works of the law, then you're implying that only the Jews could be saved because they are the ones that God gave the law to, right? So he says, so is God only the God of the Jews? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? And then he answers his own question emphatically, yes, of the Gentiles also. And then the answer, the grounding for that, that he says that God is also the God of the Gentiles, he says, since God is one. And it's hard not to hear an echo of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was something of a creed among the Jewish people. God is one. And he refers to that here. Is God only the God of the Jews? No, God is one. And then he points to the singular plan of salvation that he has. He will justify the circumcised by faith and he will justify the uncircumcised by faith. There's no difference in the plan of salvation for one group of people over another. And I would go as far as to say there's not two groups of people who are God's people. There is one people. There's one God, he has one people, and there's one plan of salvation. What is it? Faith in Jesus Christ. The redemption that comes through the death of Jesus in our place that is appropriated to our lives by the Spirit of God when we believe in Him. There's one God, one plan of salvation for His one people. God is God of the Jews and of the Gentiles, and He will justify both in the very same way. So there ought to be no discrimination among the people of God. All people and peoples are welcomed at the foot of the cross. Don't let any social, political, economical, educational, racial, ethnic, generational, or any other distinction among human beings keep you from announcing the good news of a just God who justifies sinners and inviting people to come to him in faith. God saves all who believe. It is that simple. So to wrap this up, Christians, here's an exhortation to you. Live in the good of this gospel grace. Your works of the law do not determine your standing with God, which also means that your failure to keep the law does not jeopardize your standing with God. Your sins and failures do not remove you from His grip. You are there, not by your works, but by his grace as a gift. Live in the good of that. You are righteous by grace through faith. That is what God has declared of you in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't go back on his word, and you can't undo what he did. You are his. Live in that. Rest in that. Believe that. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're not sure about this stuff, let me say to you, there is still an opportunity for you to respond to the gospel in faith. The message is the same for all. You are a sinner. God is righteous, but he has made a way for you to be with him, for you to belong to him, for you to be made righteous, and it's simply this, repent of your sins, trust upon Jesus Christ who died in your place to bear your sins and to make you righteous before God. Trust Him, invite Him, call upon Him. It's not too late. And let your song become, along with the great hymnist Charles Wesley, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible gospel. Thank you for your patience with sinners, that you give us time to repent Thank you for the mercy you've poured out on us in Christ and for the way that you have made for us to be drawn near to you through repentance and simple faith. Grant us the gift to trust you, to cast ourselves upon you and your grace for now and eternity. In Christ's name, amen.